when Matthew and Claire uh, talked about doing people's uh, testimonies, I was a bit um, hesitant about doing my own. I think there's something uh, innately in me that, that feels people will be interested if I'm talking about something to them, but why on earth would they be interested if I'm talking about me to them? That, that feels sort of like putting oneself on a sort of pedestal to me or sort of beating myself up or, uh, and the temptation is to kind of spin the story of one's spiritual life so that it sounds much more interesting than it is or um, you seem much more holy than you are or and I, you know, it's a minefield um, so with those caveats in mind um, I think that applies especially because sort of I'm in quotes full time Christian ministry and that whole horrible sacred secular divide thing um, that still creeps in the back of our minds um, but I've been very encouraged by hearing other people's testimonies in the group um, and so I guess you know this is a nice opportunity to take stock, to celebrate some things um, to try and learn some of the lessons that I've, I've learned in life and see if I can make some general points out of my experience that are of interest um, broader than just being about me um, but I just want to start by noting that I'm a sinner and um, while I'll be honest in some of the things that I say, there'll be a whole bunch of stuff that I don't mention. So, <laughs> there you go. Um, 1974, on a dark and stormy night, uh, I was born in Portsmouth. Um, <laughs> those who are in the room can see a photo of my, uh, my mum and my dad and me. Um, not immediately after I was born, this was early, <laughs> early teens. Uh, I would say I can't date this picture precisely. Um, you'll see in there I look now quite a lot more like my mum than I do my dad but I've got my dad's height and uh, yeah so there we are that's my family um, they were both science teachers they met at teacher training college in Portsmouth and mum was in the year below dad uh, and then once they both graduated they, they got married and about two years later I came along so they had me fairly quick so I've had sort of quite young uh, parents uh, throughout life um, their family background sort of obviously has an influence down through the generations. On my dad's side, they were both uh, Christians of uh, Baptist persuasion. On my mum's side, it would be true to say that her dad was, at the very least, um, C of E. Uh, and I, I say that advisedly because I, mean, I, I never knew him. He, he died um, when I was only a few years old, so I don't have any memories of him. Uh, and my mum's not sure whether he was a Christian or whether he was someone who really liked the prayer book um, from her youth. And when um, her dad died, her mum said to her, well, I've just been going along to church for the sake of your father, but I don't really believe any of it, and I'm not going to do that anymore, um, because that's not me, um, which is fair enough, um, really. Um, but that's kind of the, the, the church uh, backgrounds through my parents, but then both of them uh, were very much uh, Christians, um, and again, going up through the, the Baptist church. Um, we lived in a council flat in Southsea, in, in Portsmouth, um, most of my life until we uh, until I um, was going towards the end of middle school and then we moved to a new housing estate up the, up the top of Portsmouth. Um, I was brought up, like my, my, um, my dad was in a Baptist church, um, since I was the creche uh, in that church, basically. Um, and I had very few contemporaries of my age. I was always one of the one of the old youngsters, or one of the young, kind of 
20-somethings, I, I was sort of bracketed between these two groups. I was always sort of the old responsible one with the littlies and the, the young one with all of the older people uh, trying to be, you know, as mature as they were um, in sort of after-church youth groups and, and things. Um, so that's that had an, an influence on, on my character. Um, I can't remember a time because of that upbringing where God didn't seem just kind of real and, and to make sense to me um, so I don't uh, as many people in the group have said have any sort of road to Damascus aha experience coming to God just a series of experiences where I thought I, I think I understand this a bit more do I own this for myself rather than just because my, my parents and sort of upbringing um, and I never came to a point of, of rejecting it uh, whenever I came to points of questioning it I always reaffirmed it in my life and I think that's very much um, hammered home in, in me the idea that Christian commitment is never a, a one-off decision it's a constant decision moment by moment really uh, and that whatever however you sort of first came into it or decided is, is not as important as the fact that you're continuing to choose it day by day now um, yeah. Um, my parents, being science teachers and um, sort of fairly well educated and so on, always uh, discussed faith issues with me. Uh, uh, so my faith was always one that, that, that welcomed talking about things in the faith, asking questions about creation and evolution and science and, and all sorts of things. And um, my dad had quite a few of the works of C.S. Lewis on the bookshelf at home um, which as I grew up I, I gradually um, got to, to read through um, so it, it, in some senses I feel I, I had a quite, quite a sort of intellectual non-charismatic if I could use that phrase kind of church upbringing and, and faith um, but I did own it for myself um, but relating to God on that background I kind of viewed God as he was sort of this glorious but fairly remote figure who gave life a meaning and purpose and a direction and sort of had a plan for us and we had to kind of fit in with that and that was a good thing um, but it wasn't a particularly um, personal kind of relationship um, I don't think for, for a lot of my life um, and perhaps from time to time I still struggle with that, that side of, of spirituality sometimes um, as a kid, I was, I was into reading in a big way. Um, basically, my mum got me to read by reading the, the Narnia stories by C.S. Lewis to me until I got frustrated at the, the slow pace at which the story would unfold and grabbed the books off her and started reading them for myself. And how I got into uh, reading the, the Narnia books. Um, as I got, I'd like to just read one brief passage from The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. Um, which came to have a sort of symbolic meaning for me later on in life. You'll, you'll see why. This is where um, Father Christmas has turned up as winter begins to thaw and he gives the, the children um, presents. Uh, and um, because as a kid, you don't kind of see the background of this, but if you later on in life, you sort of know your, your letters to the Ephesians and so on, and then you read this, you kind of see what's, what's going on. Um, These are your presents, was the answer, and they're tools, not toys. The time to use them is perhaps near at hand. Bear them well. That's what Christmas. With these words, he handed to Peter a shield and a sword. The shield was the colour of silver, and across it there ramped a red lion, as bright as a ripe strawberry at the moment when you pick it. 
The hilt of the sword was of gold, and it had a sheath and a sword belt and everything it needed, and it was just the right size and weight for Peter to use. Peter was silent and solemn as he received these gifts, for he felt that they were very serious kind of present. And obviously the fact that the character in there is called Peter, uh, I always sort of felt maybe that was sort of saying something almost sort of directly to me in the way that sometimes when you read scripture, you kind of think of it. Regardless of content, you kind of feel God is saying something to it um, through, uh, through it. And uh, the novels of um, writers like Ursula Le Guin and Tolkien. And I was into writing and poetry and chess, which my mum uh, taught me. And I used to love playing chess games with my parents until they got fed up of losing to me and wouldn't play me anymore, which was very frustrating. Um, but they taught me through that, they taught me logic, logical thinking, really. If I, if I do this, what are they like you to do? And if they do, they do that, what will I have to do to counter that within the rule set? Um, again, I think a formative influence on where I ended up um, in life. Um, so, uh, being an only child as well, and being sort of not very many contemporaries and kind of between the age groups and things, I, I, I perhaps inevitably ended up a bit of an introverted uh, child, a bit of a tendency to anxiety sometimes. I remember suffering um, mild OCD symptoms um, at times of exam stress. Um, I would get compulsively worried about um, things that I'd done that might have adversely affected other people. Uh, and I had a sort of oversensitive sense of... of um, uh, well, it wasn't really sins at all, but what felt like, oh, I might have done a bad thing to someone. I, you know, um, and I went through this whole period of exam stress, exam stress um, like that. Um, and I remember one um, summer camping holiday. My mum was trying to deal with this kind of awkward teen going in a bit of a frump on a family holiday. Obviously, um, <laughs> she pointed me towards uh, Romans chapter seven um, and read. Uh, read with me uh, this bit from Paul um, where he says I, I don't understand what I do for what I want to do I do not do but what I hate to do and so on and he, he talks about well if, it, if, if I do what I don't want to do then it's no longer me but the sin that's in me but I'm affirming that the law of God is good and I'm saved and he, he ends up in verse um, 24 what a wretched man I am who will rescue me from this body of death thanks be to God through Jesus Christ the Lord um, and I remember that passage kind of really clicking with me because of that experience and kind of bringing home the, the importance of, of the sort of salvation through Christ and, and its sort of practicality in life as well as being a sort of abstract thing. Um, it really was something that kind of made a difference to how I felt about myself um, in the world. Um, so that's been a particularly kind of significant passage. And just the reading the... I know the scripture really gets people. I think it was C.E.M. Jode, who was an Oxford philosopher, who was an atheist and then became a Christian. And he said one of the reasons he became a Christian was he'd read the Bible and he discovered that it was, it was a book that as he read it, it read him. And just the, the depth of the knowledge of the human heart that was, that was in there that he hadn't found elsewhere. And I, I kind of chime with that. I was bullied um, at secondary school. It felt like I was bullied quite, quite badly at secondary school. Um, mainly verbally but a bit physically uh, as well um, I, I think it was a bit of a, a sport to try and see if you could wind Williams up far enough that he would snap basically because I did not want to meet like with like uh, in, in that kind of realm because of my values 
but if you pushed me far enough the red mist would descend uh, and I would just flip out um, I remember at middle school uh, uh, actually one day the, the school bell had run and you all had to stand still in the playground and these kids who'd been taunting me kept on taunting me under their breath and I just flipped out and punched the guy <laughs> onto the floor you know had to be kind of dragged away and um, so that, that was kind of an interesting um, facet of my, my character I wanted to be very kind of peaceful and not rising to it but if you pushed me far enough I, would, oh, I had a real temper in me that could be kind of um, uh, provoked um, whether that has changed or whether I'm just now in a situation where nobody taunts me anymore um, I hope you can test um, the theory that, that I, I hope this is one of the things that, they, that, they, that, that, that Christ is doing within me um, I came to music um, late in secondary school um, I, I, I borrowed a flute um, over the last um, summer holiday at secondary school and then did music GCSE in the last year uh, and was very privileged to uh, get one-on-one tuition from um, the music teacher at the school, a lady called Daphne Burton, who's uh, dead now, I believe, um, who put a lot of time and effort into helping me get my GCSE in a year um, because I, I found in the sort of the choir and the orchestra and, and, and things a sort of safe haven within the school um, from, the, from the bullies with people who were more of uh, a like mind I think that was a large part of it um, so music was a, a big thing and I, I gradually learned to play the flute and when I went on to do A-levels at Portsmouth College um, I took English literature and um, music and classical civilization. Um, they didn't have philosophy and ethics A-level uh, back then but if they had I reckon I probably would have taken it um, but I, I really enjoyed the, the, the classics and the doing Shakespeare and things in English uh, and music, um, getting into composing in particular, being in a college band, that kind of thing. I, I never did very well at music history or fill out the rest of this bark organ piece on the bass line using the rules. I was like, I don't want to follow the rules. I want to do what sounds nice to me. You know, <laughs> let me compose something. Um, yeah. So I, I didn't particularly do well at the music, but I really um, loved it. Um, uh, I um, ended up doing the um, music for the college production of The Tempest, using the English and the, and the music um, together. And in the classical civ, I ended up doing a dissertation on the relationship between science and religion in ancient Greek polytheistic thought and its influence upon the modern science and religion debate. So you can kind of see where my life was going at that stage. But to my mind, um, it was dominated by the by the by the whole music um, thing um, and uh, friends, um, including a, a good many female female friends. It's been an aspect of my life. I've, I've already always had a, a lot of female friends much more easily than male friends and I, I stress friends uh, in those sentences um, I've always uh, been fortunate to have one or two close male friends but tended to more easily get on with the girls perhaps because they're just more mature than the, than the lads you know um, uh, looking back I was clearly sweet upon some of those female friends and vice versa but it never went any further than, than, than being good friends uh, at the time I did have a very good male friend at college a chap called David Bacon um, who set up the Christian Union um, at college and got me onto the exec and things and he was into science and into music 
and he played the piano and the saxophone wonderfully and was in my college band and was great at science and was teaching himself several languages and New Testament Greek and um, I think still today he's probably the most brainy person that I've uh, ever met um, and knowing him kind of challenged me to be an intellectual, that, that verse in Proverbs as iron sharpens iron, one man sharpens another's uh, thoughts um, he's now an astronomer um, last, last heard of at um, Edinburgh University doing research into dark matter um, so there we go, that's David he disappeared <laughs> uh, we've lost touch unfortunately over, over the years but uh, I still think of him sometimes Facebook <laughs> Um, and to be in touch with my faith in particular because David was very much kind of evangelistic with his faith in an intelligent way setting up to see you doing talks and, and, and so on and I'd moved on from, from Lewis's fiction to his apologetics as I say and around this time I started reading um, books like Norman Geiser's Christian Apologetics and J.P. Morland's Scaling the Secular City quite sort of meaty, hefty uh, works of Christian philosophy and so on um, I got baptised uh, around this time uh, received into membership at my church and here's some photos of me getting dunked at our church in Portsmouth and uh, full adult baptism as we Baptists await today <laughs> and drip drying afterwards um, I, I went through all of the baptism preparation classes that they do and I remember the minister sort of asking group, everybody in the group so are you going to get baptised uh, and I'd done through this like six weeks course or whatever and he asked, are you going to get baptised then? And I, I kind of said, I'll think about it. <laughs> Went home, had to think about it on my own before calling him back and saying, yes, I'm going to get baptised. Because I really uh, wanted to, to make sure that it was something that I was doing for me and not because of my parents. I'm very glad that my, my parents were in the faith and yet yeah, said things to me when I was old enough to kind of stay at home alone say things like, you don't have to go to church with us, Pete. You could, you could go somewhere else if you want, or you could just stay at home. You know, it's your decision. Um, so I, we, we'll, we'll still sort of love you whether you're a Christian or not. We'd like you to be. We think it's true. You know, we'll, we're prepared to talk to you about it, but there was a, a great deal of kind of freedom and support from my parents, which I'm eternally um, thankful for. Um, Whilst at college, Nick Pollard's Solent Christian Trust, that was, did a, a mission week, Christian Mark week as they were called, in my college, which I helped organise on the exec, and they brought in speakers like um, Chris Akabusi and Christian Band, and um, Nick did sort of Q&A events, and they brought in a, a guy who'd been a Muslim and become a Christian, and... Um, over the years, I kind of kept in contact with, with Nick a little bit. I went on a conference that Southern Christian Trust arranged um, one summer, I think it must have been, and I kind of got his newsletter down the years. And we, we, I sort of kept in touch with him, and he was kind of kept in touch with me, and will resurface um, later in the story. Um, the summer between finishing A-levels and going off to university, I went on a mission, um, and it consisted of a training week and then a, a week practical going and helping a church, local church, do a mission to young people and so on. Um, and during that training week, there was a, um, a service in which they had a, a meditation time. So we're just going to play this piece of music, and they played um, Luke the Calf by the Christian band Iona. You know Iona. Uh, we're just going to play this bit of music, just kind of 
meditate on it, have a bit of a quiet time, chill out, you know. And whilst I listen to that bit of music, I can I had what I can only describe as the first and only visionary experience that I've had in my life. And it's hard to describe that experience, um, but I wrote a poem about it. Um, which was subsequently published in an uh, anthology of Christian poetry. So you might later want, like to, uh, to read that poem. But this series of, kind of images that I describe in the poem and, and, and feelings came over me in a way that, that it wasn't me making them up. They were kind of coming into me from outside, um, unbidden, without sort of me willing it to happen. or It just kind of... I was just caught up in this experience and the gist of it was this, this, this image of something really small kind of in the hand of God and that was like creation and everything being really tiny in the hand of God but, but God knowing it all completely and loving it and me, even though I was a very small white speck of sand on the seashore of reality was just as much part of that creation and known completely and yet loved by God as everything else, as it were. Um, and so for me, it was a, an experience of that more kind of personal kind of God. He, he, he sort of knows me and he loves me despite knowing me, actually knowing me better than I know myself because I can't know reality as much as he does. Um, so there isn't anything I could find out about myself now or in the future that could mean that he loves me any less. Um, and that was a, that was a powerful um, experience for me. Um, other very interesting things happened on, on this mission, including the fact that on my team, um, when I was then placed in a church, was a young lady called um, Louise. Um, that's her getting baptised um, just a little while later um, she um, was at the end of secondary school must have been around 16 um, she was um, profoundly deaf um, had worn hearing aids her whole life had been told um, her parents had been basically told that she'd never go into mainstream education um, which they pushed and worked really hard for her to do and she did um, learning to lip read and sort of uh, get along with, uh, with people who were just speaking rather than doing sign language. She wasn't particularly good at sign language because she really put the effort into, into the lip reading and so on. Uh, and on this mission, she had broken her leg. <laughs> she had a broken leg was going around on crutches, pushing on with doing this mission, which really Im- impressed me. Um, and as the week went on, I spent quite a lot of time um, when we went out and about pushing her wheelchair for her so she could keep up with everybody and getting to know her more and praying with her and finding her completely fascinating and interesting in a whole host of ways um, which uh, when she then invited me to come and see her uh, baptism um, subsequently and meet her family and I asked her to be my girlfriend and she said yes I was absolutely delighted and that was wonderful um, uh, in Cheltenham her family um, lived and we were um, together as a couple for most of my three years at Cardiff University, which I then uh, went on to. And indeed, during that time, I published uh, an article in um, a magazine 
it's now defunct, called Healing and Wellness Magazine, um, with her permission, of course, this article that I've given you here, uh, which was about um, having a relationship as a hearing person with a, with a deaf person and putting that in the context of some kind of theological musings about the problem of suffering and, and how her kind of life experience related to that and um, the questions of Jeff's desire. Quite a nice little article, but that will give you an, an insight into our uh, relationship. Um, about now, going to Cardiff, I can remember a kind of sense of calling from God to play my role in his kingdom, whatever that was going to be. And I really had not much of a clue as to what that could be or was going to, to end up being. Um, I signed on to do a joint degree in English and music. I still loved the music and I liked I you know, loved the, the English lit that I'd done at uh, A-level and uh, because it was a Welsh university you had to do three humanities courses in your first year so I had to take an, another course I said oh well I've done a bit of Plato and, and so on in classes so I'll do philosophy for a year ha yes uh, so I took that to my third course and then after the first year that became a single honours degree in philosophy um, <laughs> partly because I hated the very, very, very postmodern English department at Cardiff University, um, which was um, seemed to me, at least, to be full of lecturers saying things like, texts don't really mean anything, they only mean whatever they mean to you. There's no real difference between the back of a cornflake packet and Shakespeare. If the cornflake packet moves you more than the Shakespeare does, then it's more meaningful to you, and that's all that can be said about it. Um, which is an interesting situation when you go into an English lit lectures like that in literary criticism and then go into a Bible study and asking questions like, what does the Bible mean? Uh, well, this is what it means to me, you know, but is there now a deeper question than that? Can I, can I ever be wrong about what it means? But apparently not on the literary theory of my professors. So I ended up writing in-lit papers that were basically philosophy papers um, damning the theory of uh, deconstructionalism in literary uh, criticism. Um, music, I still loved, and I was like in the, in the uh, chamber choir and, uh, and did concerts and was getting, getting into the composition of things, but I'd come to music late. I only had one instrument. I got up to grade seven. I was doing the work for grade eight, finding it quite tough. Um, but I only had one instrument and they really wanted two if you were going to do full-time music and you had to do full-time music in order to be allowed to do composition which was the only bit that I really loved Um, so that was kind of closing down and my philosophy tutor who was um, no doubt some post-grad making a bit of money on the side was marking my papers in the first year and saying things like that's, that's really good. I, I've, I've never given an undergraduate a mark that, that, that's that high. You really should think about doing philosophy. Um, so I think when I suggested to the university that I, that I ditch um, music, which I only just scraped past my first year exams in, uh, <laughs> jump ship for philosophy where I was getting really good marks, they, they, they thought about their um, um, prospectus kind of <laughs> figures and, and reckoned that that was a good deal so they let me jump course um, to doing single honours in the philosophy um, but I, you know, I won a few composition competitions and so on and was beginning to produce some sort of liturgical religious music that I quite liked and um, I've got a bit that I could play for you guys and I could, I could insert it into the, into the podcast Thank you. 
Um, so for a time, I was perhaps for a term or two, convinced that I was going to be a Christian composer. That's what I was going to do. I was going to make beautiful music unto the Lord. You know, That was where I was going to go. That would be something that I loved that I could do um, for God. And it kind of, I don't know, tied very much in with the fact that a lot of my religious experience, apart from that one I told you about, of what might be described as the kind of indirect kind, um, you know, looking at the world and nature and thinking, yeah, there's got to be someone out there and it's going to be marvellous um, I was invited to be the president of the Philosophy Society and I had a, a wonderful personal tutor um, called um, Michael uh, Durant who'd been at, uh, at Oxford with A.J. Eyre he's a famous British philosopher and Michael Durant was an expert on Aristotle and he was a Christian um, which was kind of really encouraging uh, to me and he became the honorary president of the Philosophy Society because I asked him and I tried to use that to get sort of debates on, on philosophy religion related issues going and, and so on. Um, and I had an agnostic um, professor for the philosophy of religion who was really encouraging towards me, although he didn't agree with me, but he didn't vehemently disagree with me either. He just kind of said, you know, I'm confused about the whole thing. I don't know. Um, I'd be really interested to see if people could argue one way or the other. Yeah. Um, so he was very open uh, about it and supportive, although not agreeing with me. And, and generally speaking, um, away from the sort of heated um, public debates with new atheists and so on that sometimes go on, the world of philosophy is a lot more open to talking about religious issues um, than I think many other fields of academia are, just because it's one of the core subjects that philosophy looks at and has done for several thousand years, the debates about God and religion and, and so on. Um, to see you was obviously quite form- formative but I, I think more than, even more than that the close friends that I made in Hall so I have a Christian guy called Jason who I met them my first day at Hall very much broadened my Christian experience because he was from a much more charismatic background than I was and that was a <laughs> bit of a shock um, <laughs> and, and really challenged me on some of my uh, theology and spirituality and so on um, and out of this time and, and sticking with me today verses like 1 Peter 3.15 um, always be ready to give an answer an apologia to those who ask a reason for the hope that it was in, is within you but is for gentleness and respect that's kind of been my my guiding verse for my um, my work um, since and C.S. Lewis's quote to the effect that good philosophy must exist if for no other reason than that bad philosophy needs to be answered um, that actually my time at, at, at Cardiff and in the English lit department who were really peddling philosophy without knowing it and a very bad one at that a very destructive one at that um, showed me that ideas really matter people's ideas that you know next to love ideas are the most kind of powerful mind-bending substances that there are certainly they're the most mind-bending legal substances available on campus um, is ideas um, whether you're getting them explicitly or you're just kind of picking them up without thinking them, about them. Um, in my third year at Cardiff, I I had a growing sense of what I eventually be, came to be able to call a depression. Um, but I didn't have a label for it at the time. And so I had a growing sense of, well, I don't know what, but it was horrible. Um, Louise at this stage had decided to go off to Latin America on a Latin link mission quite a long term Latin link mission um, so 
she was kind of away and uncontactable. She was out in the Andes somewhere, you know, building latrines or whatever. Um, and I just had this growing sense that I, I think had been building throughout our relationship in, in the latter months and so on of a kind of a, a cloud. There was this inner pain that I couldn't understand. And therefore, because I couldn't understand it or label it, it felt like an outside force. Um, you know, if I'd been terribly charismatic and in a different culture, it might have been said I was being demonically oppressed. Uh, it kind of felt like that, you know. Um, and it got to the stage where I was kind of locked in my uh, room, in my in my halls of digs, um, screaming into my pillow and, and hammering on the wall until my hand was just going numb from hammering on the concrete wall of my block of flats. Um, and I had a flatmate called Simon who was studying psychology. Hooray <laughs> 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 for Simon. Um, who said, hey, I think you might have depression. Um, uh, and suggested that I went off and saw a, a counsellor, which I did, who kind of agreed with that. And uh, that being even just being able to put a label on it. Um, was a, a relief in itself, and the idea that actually there are people who might help, and I could do maybe do something about this. But I really didn't quite understand it. But um, just after I completed my exams at the end of Cardiff, um, Louise uh, wrote me a letter um, ending the relationship with me, um, and basically saying that she had come to the realization that I was a lot more committed to this relationship with her than she was with me and that it wasn't fair to kind of keep me stringing along because, you know, at this stage, okay, I was looking at engagement rings in jewellers, okay, seriously, uh, and I think she was thinking, gosh, this guy, he's like two, three years older than me, I'm just about to go off to uni, he's just finishing uni, um, I'm still kind of finding my way in life, he kind of knows what he wants to sort of settle down with me and you know, um, and I'm glad that she came to that realization and actually did something about it. Because if she hadn't have done something about it, you know, uh, disastrous things would probably have resulted. Um, but once that happened, I came to realize that the, the, the source of the depression that I had been growing in me was the fact that I'd been picking up on the fact that basically. To use language rather loosely, I loved her a lot more than she loved me, and it, it kind of showed in her behaviour, um, just with things like how effusive she would be physically in certain situations in public, very kind of standoffish, uh, you want to hold hands all that much, you know. Um, and I gradually picked up on this, and, and being thick, hadn't really put two and two together, um, but has sublimated the whole thing. Um, <laughs> Uh, so, in a sense, I'm very glad that she kind of was the one who had the wisdom to see that this is not working and it's not fair to perpetuate it. And she thought she'd, she'd be very kind and she'd wait until after I'd done my exams until she'd tell me. Um, probably gave me several ex extra months of <laughs> getting depressed in the meantime, but she meant, uh, she meant well about it and I appreciated that um, afterwards. Uh, and despite all that, I, I managed to pass my exams. I got a 2-1. I was two marks off getting a first, mm -hmm. which I thought wasn't too bad for, for someone going through a state of depression at the time um, as well. 
and I got some Christian counselling and some serotonin reuptake drugs from the doctor. Eschewing the sacred secular divide, once again, um, you know, drugs put you on a stable enough footing to be able to deal with and go through the issues with the counsellor, and then you don't need the drugs anymore because you've you've reshaped your thinking about things. That's why you need to do both. Um, and and the, the Christian counselling, particularly, you know, it was a time of great kind of growth in self knowledge out of that pain. Kind of shaped a lot of my self knowledge about myself and character and things. And again, seeing the practical importance of forgiveness, and it dragged up a whole lot of stuff about the, the batch of the bullying that I'd undergone at school, and the fact that I needed to forgive the people who had bullied me, and that if I didn't forgive the people who bullied me, I was still giving them power over me, and um, still kind of suffering from them, and that actually forgiveness is not just about the person that you forgive, it's about you as well. That it's a good thing. It's, it's a good thing on, on both ends of the of the relationship. Um, so I went through all that, and I decided, well, I'm going to take philosophy as far as I can, because here at last I found something that I like, that I'm good at. Um, uh, you know, I'm no earthly good uh, otherwise in the world. You know, apart from the summer jobs I had doing washing up in hotels, um, you know, I knew I could do that, but there wasn't anything else that I could do. Um, apart from think and, and write quite well about it, um, I've sublimated a lot of my uh, kind of inlet and creative energies into the into the philosophy um, because it wasn't enough for me just to, to write the assignment and hand it into the tutor at, at Cardiff. I had to write it in a in a dialogue form. Or um, I well remember struggling with Aristotle's um, theory of primary and secondary matter, but handing in my paper on the subject in rhyming pentameter. <laughs> Um, <laughs> like a Greek uh, playwright, because that would be more interesting for the teacher. Um, yeah, <laughs> I got over it eventually, but you know, I had to put all those creative juices somewhere for a while. Um, I'd been so long into writing the fiction and poetry and music, and that had to kind of find some way of coming out through the, the philosophy uh, as well. <laughs> I went off to Sheffield University I was there for a year, did an MA um, got involved in the Joint Chaplaincy Society rather than the Christian Union because I didn't find the Christian Union and I thought the Joint Chaplaincy Society is smaller I'll get to know everyone quicker I'll be more useful there and it was great and it was lovely to kind of meet people who were Methodists and URC and C of E and all sorts of things um, broadening again. Um, Louise, meanwhile, went to Sheffield Hallam University, which made my heart sink, basically, because um, she still wanted to be friends. <laughs> I just could not do that. Um, so the our very idea that we were both going to go to university in the same city was, did not appeal to me, but I did not see her once, did not bump into her hear how I ignore tale of her. Um, and then I went on to Norwich, um, UAE in Norwich for, for two years, and um, I was on the CU exec there, and the Anglican Society exec, and they a wonderful um, campus where they had the chaplaincy right smack bang in the middle of the campus, uh, courtyard of the campus, student union chaplaincy, there it was, and all of the chaplains were there, and the Christian union met in the Anglican church on top of the, the chaplaincy. So it was a very inter- Linked, cross-denominational kind of place, which is not the case at other places that I've been. That was very nice because that 
So I was able to be involved with kind of all of it at the same time. Um, and I was on the um, Theology Society as well, and um, got my first book published, Thanks for God, at the end of my time there. And, and somehow, whilst I was there, I also managed to find time to do my own film thesis. I don't know when, in between the coffee and interminable rounds of board games and the chaplaincy. Sometimes, obviously, got some writing done, but I can't. You know, that doesn't dominate my memory uh, of the time. Um, but I love my writing. I, I ended up drawing out on it in um, the, the book, uh, I Wish I Could Believe in Meaning, um, which I'm currently doing the second edition of. Advert. Okay. <laughs> um, and <laughs> on my last day, uh, just as I was leaving Norwich, uh, the last time I went into town, and uh, my last trip to the Christian bookshop in Norwich City Centre, I bumped into Louise in the Christian bookshop in Norwich. Um, I said hello and went out for a coffee, and that was the last time I saw her. She'd been doing a work placement just north of Norwich and had decided that day to go into town and pop into the Christian bookshop that I always went to, which was interesting. Uh, and then I went to Leicester um, to work for Holy Trinity Church in Leicester as a church based student worker. Um, went there for two years initially, and they extended my contract whilst I was there, so I was there three years. So I took a whole year group through university and was able to train up my workers so that we had someone in place to take over when they graduated and I left, which uh, worked uh, really well. It was nice they were able to build the student. One of the terrible things about student ministry is the high turnover rate of people. It's very hard to build anything in, in student work. Um, you just run it to stand still a lot of the time in those situations. And I think for sort of five or six years we managed to, to build the student work there. Um, running student small groups and student alpha groups and mission events and doing one-on-one chatting with people and the church, knowing my background, very thank- nice for it, nice of them. They they gave me a day a week um, off to do writing, and whilst I was there, I wrote the um, the book, The Case for Angels. So that came out my time at at, uh, at Leicester. Um, and I learned a lot about um, not only what I'm good at, but what I'm not good at which I think is just as important in life to know what you're rubbish at I'm pretty rubbish at admin and I'm pretty rubbish actually at running a team of being in charge of a team of people I needed a lot of help and support from other people to get all of that kind of stuff done Um, so that you know I knew by the end of my time there I had half thought about was I going to go into the ministry no was <laughs> the answer that because I saw working on the inside of a, of a team ministry in a church. I mean, to me that was great because I come from a Baptist background where one guy basically has to do everything and be good at everything. <laughs> and I thought, oh, at least from the C of A, you don't have to be good at everything. You can have different people who do things. This is a good idea. But even so, uh, you know, I decided ministry was was, was not for me. Um, and I did some preaching there, um, which was which was all right. You know, that gave me a bit of into public speaking and communication uh, to people a couple of things that struck home learned practically in that time Um, this quote this may not be exact uh, I think it's Frederick Bookshare he said uh, we're not called on by God to be successful but we're called on to be faithful so if you think that God's calling you to do something and you're faithful about it and you do it that is success if you know, if you think God's calling you to be a, 
missionary or whatever and you go and be a missionary and you preach your heart out and no one becomes a Christian you've done your job you've been faithful you've been a success just as much as the guy who goes out there and converts thousands in, in that sense in worldly terms you would judge it and say oh well he was much more you know B was much more successful than A because look at the results but actually what in scripture what God calls us to is being faithful to him and playing our part as well as we can you know? and that's it God does not judge us by the results that we get in ministry which was an encouraging thing that I learned at that time and, and also about guidance um, I did a couple of talks on guidance to like some adult um, alpha groups and they used to draft me in on helping other stuff when the students were away in the summer kids clubs and adult alpha um, being among them um, and going through that time and thinking okay, I've, I've done this philosophy as, as far as I could get with it I've got this temporary job working for a church kind of finding out what I'm good at what I'm not and thinking what I'm going to do still don't really know guidance you know, I've done six years in university, three years. Uh, I've done nearly a decade since I left, you know, A levels with no sight of a career or, you know, proper job, you know, proper job um, in mind at all. But I reckon that the guidance is broad and it's not narrow. A lot of people that I met and was obviously talking a lot to students about, well, what are you going to do next? And, and some of the big topic of conversation, you can imagine. Um, a lot of people have this view that God's will for their life is like a tightrope walk over a shark-infested pit of doom. And you've got to always choose to do God's will, but he won't let you know what that is, because he's like that, you know, likes a good snigger at our expense. And if you put a foot wrong, you're, you're outside of God's will, even though he's not really told you, and you will plummet to your doom in the shark-filled pit of infested um, doominess. Um, people really worry about you know, am I doing God's will or not and I, I reckon there are some things that he's been pretty darn clear about you know, is, it God, is it God's will that I commit adultery um, no you know, um, on those issues where God hasn't been quite so clear perhaps there's you know, a reason why he hasn't been quite so clear about it probably not that he wants to have a good snigger at our expense when we stuff up you know, knowing what we know about the character of God from other, from other means um, so uh, my alternative image to the, uh, the tyrant walk over the pit of Dean is um, guidance from God is like um, going for a walk in the fields with God you're holding um, his hand like a parent uh, and you're the kid and you're walking in the countryside and you say um, it would be nice to go over there let's go over there and see the, see the flowers in that hedgerow over there and as long as you can do that whilst holding God's hand He'll come with you, you know. Um, that's fine. Um, you could have gone over to the other side of the field and um, petted the sheep, you know, if that's your kind of thing. And as long as God will go there with you, that's fine, you know. God probably doesn't want you to get a career as a um, as an assassin for the mafia. Um, but whether you turn out to be a Christian composer or a Christian philosopher, which was kind of my alternative career paths with my education and so on um, I reckon God would probably have been happy with, with either of those outcomes really I mean um, it might be providential that I've ended up doing one or, or the other but I don't kind of have this sense that if I you know, really pushed it, the, the composition and stuck it and even if I've been successful or not that, that 
I would have been being unfaithful to God because, you know, if you wanted me to go somewhere, make it clear, as long as you're saying to him, God, you know, I'm open to being persuaded otherwise. You're not putting the blinkers on and saying, I'm going to do what I want to do because I want to do it. You're saying, well, I'd like to do this. I'm open to being told otherwise. And he doesn't. I kind of take it as read that it's okay, you know, um, all things being equal, as it were. So, God's, God's will is, is kind of not a tightrope walk, but it is quite broad that you've got to take him with you. That's what I reckon about the whole guidance thing. I've done two years in, in Leicester, and they said to me, Pete, you're getting on okay, work's going okay, why don't we sign you on for another year, you take a whole year group through, that time will work out well. I said, yes, that's great. We'll give you a pay rise, they said, because I said, yes, but I can't stand another year of sharing accommodation. <laughs> you know, I've now spent like eight years in shared accommodation with people. Uh, I need the washing up to be mine. <laughs> <laughs> Whether it's done or not, it's mine. <laughs> That's not done. <laughs> Basically. Um, so they said, well, we'll give you a pay rise to help you get somewhere here. And uh, um, my grandma um, had died and lost my grandparents to... Uh, on my father's side and I had inherited some money and together with those I was able to get a little flat in, in Leicester which I've now um, sold off after I rented out to various friends at, at cheap rates for a number of years um, so that they could do things like work for UCCF for a year and things whilst I've left but that's, that's all gone the way of all flesh now um, but they gave me a pay rise but because I had this money from my grandma I gave myself a pay cut for that final year and saved money because Nick Pollard had phoned up and said Pete we've got this thing called the Damaris Trust and we really need someone with a background in philosophy who's a Christian to come and work with us and we'd love you to come and work with us and wouldn't that be great and I said yes I'd love to come but I just said yes to staying another year here in Leicester so I can't you know renege on that I've got to be here for another year and then I'll come down to Damaris but actually that year meant that I was able to save enough money that at the end of my time at Leicester I had a year's money in the bank account and I said to God okay I've got this great opportunity I think to go and work with Demoris down in Southampton I have been a good steward I have saved money put it aside for this purpose you know I've done a pool I've worked for my for my living so that I can go and do this I'm going to go and do this for a year unless you say you know clearly otherwise um, if you want me to keep doing it there better be money in the bank account at the end of the next year. Because otherwise, I'm going to have to go and get a proper job. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's just reality. You know? I'm, gonna, I'm either going to have money in the bank account still at the end of the year to keep going, or I'm going to be starving. <laughs> if I'm starving, you know, I'm going to go and get a job. Okay. Um, <laughs> so I went down to, came down to Southampton and I rented um, behind... Um, um, in uh, Bitten, uh, just by the river, uh, I, I entered through someone's garage, down the back of the garage, into the granite flat below, overlooking the railway tracks. Um, so, uh, lots of people thought I lived in the garage. <laughs> in the garage, that was just my, my way of getting to where I lived, in the garden below. Um, it was a little hobbit hole, um, but it suited me for a year, and let me test the waters here. Um, and I still had money at the end of the year, uh, so I, um, I looked for somewhere to live more permanently here moved to where I am now, near the uni, and here I am seven years later, um, and there's still money in the bank, <laughs> so um, I'm kind of taking it that God still wants me here, and um, it seems to be very exciting and new stuff happening all the time, 
and um, you can see my um, another bit of paper that I've given out. My latest edition of my my press wrote, "Give me money, letter," um, which you don't have to give me money, but you don't have to read even. But it's there if you want to do either. Um, yeah, and, and you know, constant evolving opportunities, um, particularly getting into now recently um, doing apologetics through video to people, as well as just for years we were writing and speaking, and now I'm writing and speaking and making videos.